this morning we come to the last of the seven signs in John's Gospel. Each of the signs was selected by this disciple of Jesus so that we could believe. And then once we believe, we would receive eternal life. Now, can you remember the previous six miracles, the six signs? Let's call them out. Don't have to be in order. Which ones can you remember out of the six? Liam. Great. Feeds the 5,000. That's one. Yes. That's right. Walked on the water. Stilled the waves. Yes. Water into wine. You're doing well. Doing a little bit better than the first service. Not that it's a competition. Let's see if you can get another couple. Yes, the water into wine. Yes. That's right. The, the lame man by the pool. And the official son. I think that's it. I think that's everything. Let's go and have a check. So the first one was water into wine, the wedding at Canaan, and then we had the healing of the official son, uh, the invalid by the pool being healed, feeding of the 5,000, walking on the water, and the obvious one that we didn't mention was the one we did last week, the man born blind being healed. That's what we did last week. Yeah, well done. Today we come to the last and most dramatic of the seven signs. The other six sort of build up to and reach their climax in the healing or the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And so you see Lazarus is at death's door. Lazarus' days are short. The shadow of death is upon him. Liam, did you have a question? You'll find out. You'll just wait and see, and you'll find out. This is all good, isn't it? Love to have the questions. Who is Lazarus? Well, he is one of three siblings. So we have Lazarus, and he has two sisters who are? Mary and Martha. Martha. So these are three special friends of Jesus. And uh, we read in Luke about how one time he came and had a meal with them, and they just were part of a support crew. Now, it turns out that Lazarus is desperately sick, So the two sisters do what any two sisters would do. They sent a message to Jesus. Because not only were they friends with Jesus, they knew that Jesus was in the business of healing people. So surely Jesus would drop everything and then come and everything would be all right. Now Jesus is on the other side of the Jordan River. He's in the south. He'd been in Jerusalem, got into a little bit of trouble, as he did in Jerusalem, and is on the other side of the Jordan. So the message reaches him. However... Instead of going straight away, he hesitates. He hesitates for at least two days. And the disciples wonder why he's hesitating. Maybe it's because the Jews had recently picked up stones to kill him in Jerusalem, and it was a near thing. So maybe Jesus has been cautious about going back there again for his own safety. But no, that's not it. For it's not the fear of death that is keeping Jesus back but that he could show his authority over death that he holds back. You see the difference? He's not scared of dying, but he wants to show his authority over death. And so he waits. And we pick up the story two days after the messengers have given him the news in chapter 11 of John, verse 11. He went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep but I'm going to wake him up. Now, the disciples think this is a good sign. You know, he's sleeping peacefully. He must be getting better. But no, that's not at all what it means. But Jesus continues in verse 14. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. 
So in the time from which the two sisters sent the messenger to this time here, somewhere in that time, Lazarus has passed away. And Thomas' response, the disciple Thomas's response is very telling. See what he says in verse 16. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. That's a really puzzling thing for Thomas to say. There's a sense where the disciples believe that Jesus is going to face death in more ways than one. And they're right, because this is Jesus' last trip to Jerusalem. And he will face death beyond that of Lazarus. He will face his own death. So they set out and arrive at Bethany. Bethany's just two or three kilometres outside of Jerusalem. And by the time they get there, they find that Lazarus has been four days in the grave. Because it's so close to the city of Jerusalem, a number of uh, Jewish folk have come out from the city to pay their last respects. Now Martha hears that Jesus is on his way and he's almost there, so she leaves the town and greets him on the road. And so she catches up with him and see what she says to him in verse 21. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It's true, isn't it? If Jesus had been there, then Lazarus might not have died because Jesus had healed many people, his mother-in-law from a fever. How many lepers did he heal? At least 10, if we remember that story, and more. He'd healed folk with internal, that lady with internal bleeding, the man born blind, and so many others. And so, if Jesus had been there, Lazarus need not have died. Now, how does Jesus respond? Well, he doesn't say, well, I waited two days to make sure he was really dead. <laughs> that would be very unsensitive, wouldn't it? <laughs> no, he says something really, really interesting. He says in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. What a puzzling thing to say to someone who's grieving the loss of a brother. And a brief theological discussion follows. I am the resurrection of life. Let's just focus on here for a little bit. This is one of the seven I am sayings of Jesus. John loves sevens. So he has seven signs, and we're looking at seven signs. But he also has seven I am statements. And sometimes they cross over. So Jesus said, I am the bread of life. We looked at that before. I am the light of the world. We looked at that last week. Here Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Now what does that mean? And what about whoever believes in me will live even though they die? Now what's that about? Well, there's a lot going on here, and we're going to unpack this in a little bit soon, because at the moment Mary joins them. Now notice Mary's first words to Jesus. Notice the first words to Jesus from Mary. And we see this in verse 32. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It's interesting, isn't it? The very same words that Mary said are the very same words that Martha said. Now you'd think if the exact same question was asked to exactly the same person, just an hour apart, that person would give you exactly the same response. Nothing can be further of the truth. 
how does Jesus respond? Does Jesus say, I'm the resurrection and the life? No. Jesus wept. Isn't that interesting? Same question. Different answer. Now, this is the shortest verse in the English Bible. If you're into memory verses, I recommend you learn this one first. <laughs> no, it's the shortest verse. Some people say it's the most powerful verse. Would you agree? It's interesting, isn't it? Jesus wept. He draws alongside Mary, shares her sorrows, and weeps. Hmm. Now, before we move on to the tomb, with all the drama and the excitement that's about to happen, let's pause and think about why Jesus gave two completely different responses to the same question. To Martha, he gave a rational, logical, head response, a discussion about the resurrection, because that's what she needed. To Mary, Jesus gave an emotional response. He wept with her. A heart response, because that's what Mary needed. What we see is two different people processing grief in different ways, and Jesus acts accordingly. Isn't that amazing? I mean, Jesus is just not all, you know, miracles and power and all this sort of stuff. He's that, but hasn't he got this wonderful insight and care and compassion for people who are grieving? Martha needed Jesus' theological explanation of the resurrection to help her process the grief. That's just the way that Martha's wired. Mary needed someone to draw alongside her to cry with her. That's the way she's wired. Now, if you'd gone up to Mary and given her a logical explanation of the, the resurrection, that would have been no help to her whatsoever. If you'd gone to Martha and cried on her shoulder, she wouldn't have found that all that helpful either because that's not the way she's wired. And many were touched with Jesus' show of emotion. Many, but not all. Notice the nasty barb in the stinger of a comment. Bosh, this is a cruel thing to say. Verse 37. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Ouch. It's nasty, isn't it? There are people pointing at Jesus said, well, if Jesus really loved Lazarus, he would have got here early and healed him. And so you get this nasty, nasty, nasty attack undergirding this sort of conversation here. Anyway, Jesus is undeterred and asked to be shown the tomb. Now, it was common in those days to use a cave with a stone rolled over the front or, or a, a hand-chiseled tomb out of you know, a rock face to be a tomb. Often, once the body had decomposed, they would go in and get the bones and, and put them in what's called an ossuary, you know, sort of a, like a casket. That's what would often happen. But anyway, so it's not uncommon. And so Jesus asked to be taken, taken away there. And as Jesus arrives, we're told that the Lazarus's body has been in the tomb four days, which makes Martha's comment very practical. Listen to this in verse 38. Take away the stone, Jesus said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odour, for he has been there four days. <laughs> Martha, Martha, she's so practical, isn't she? Do you remember in Luke, and Jesus and the twelve arrive at the house of the three siblings, and they stay for a meal. And Jesus starts teaching, and where's Mary? Mary's sitting at Jesus' feet, listening. 
What's Martha doing? Practical Martha is running around organising a meal for all these visitors. And she gets so frustrated that she goes to Jesus and says, look, Jesus, I'm really busy. Can you get Mary to help me? Because Martha's very practical. And she's practical here too. Lord, there'll be a bad odour. In the King James Version it says, Lord, but he stinketh. I think it's a great translation. One of the more, yeah, Lord, he stinketh. And that's the practical Mary. It listens to, to Jesus' reply. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Now remember, back on the other side of Jordan, Jesus' stated aim for waiting was that people would see and believe. And just a, just a half an hour or so before, he had said to Martha, I am the resurrection of the life. Believe and you will see. And he's saying that now. And I'm sure, with some reluctance, the stone is rolled away. And then Jesus gives a brief prayer of thanksgiving to God. And then we see in verse 43, when he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. And there we have Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Isn't it wonderful? So just pause for a minute, actually. Imagine if Jesus hadn't chosen his words carefully. Imagine if Jesus had left out the word Lazarus. Imagine Jesus standing in the middle of a cemetery and calling out, Come out! What do you think would have happened? Yeah, they would all come out. Jesus would have emptied the cemetery. So it's almost like Jesus saying, Lazarus, only you, no one else. The rest of you can wait. Lazarus, come out. It's a wonderful thought, isn't it? When Jesus returns again, he will call, come out, and we will all rise to meet him. Isn't that exciting? But for now, he just says, Lazarus, come out. And then he shuffles out in his grave clothes, and great is the rejoicing. Great is the rejoicing. And we see what Jesus wanted to see. Verse 45, Therefore many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. Jesus delays on the side of Jordan so that people may see and believe. What do we see happening? People are believing. And they're seeing. But not all. There's a twist, nasty twist to the story, a dark twist. Because straight away... Verse 46, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Exactly. Snitches, tittle-tattles. And so the Pharisees, mainly in Jerusalem, and they call a meeting. And they're worried. In fact, they're despairing because this is what they see. Jesus has flown under the radar of the Roman authorities. They don't know about Jesus. They don't care. But Jesus' popularity is growing. That The Pharisees believe that any moment... The Roman authorities are going to see this Jesus. And they're going to see he has heaps of followers, and all these followers are calling him king. And the Roman authorities are going to see that as a threat, and they will come, and there will be blood in the streets of Jerusalem. And it won't be just the blood of the followers of Jesus, it will be all of the Jewish folk. Now that's how the Pharisees are interpreting what's happened. They saw what happened when he healed the man born blind, and now he's raised someone from the dead. 
they know that Jesus' popularity is shooting through the roof and they think the Romans will crush them as well as the whole nation of Israel. And so they're very worried. And that's why Caiaphas, the, the high priest, says this, verse 49. You know nothing at all. He's talking to his fellow Pharisees that are in a meeting. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. Amazing, isn't it? Unbeknown to Caiaphas, this is a prophecy from God. And John, the writer of the gospel, points this out, that this is a prophecy that points to Jesus dying not only for the Jews, but all the non-Jews as well. His words, the words of Caiaphas, will be fulfilled in a week or two as Jesus moves from the town of Bethany to Jerusalem to Calvary, the cross, and his own tomb. However, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus know nothing of these movements of power in the city. They are too busy rejoicing, and I'm sure they invite Jesus and the disciples to have another meal at their place in their house at Bethany. We're going to look at some implications and application, some implications and take-homes for us. So the first implication is this. The account of Jesus raising the Lazarus from the dead proves that he is the resurrection and the life. He claimed he was the resurrection of the life, and then he proved it. Earlier we'd seen Jesus say, I am the bread of life, and he fed 5,000 people bread. Earlier we saw Jesus say, I am the light of the world, and he healed a blind man. Here he said, I am the resurrection and the life, and he raised a dead man to life again. And that's why John calls these miracles signs, because all of these miracles are pointed to Jesus and his divinity, and that he is the Messiah, and that he is the Son of God, and that we are to believe and worship him. And this last sign, doesn't it do it so well? I'm the resurrection of the life, and I raise Lazarus. However, there's a qualification, because Lazarus was raised... But later on, he died. He wasn't raised to eternal life. It was more of a resuscitation. However, it still proves conclusively that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. It's actually the second resurrection in John's Gospel, which really underscores, underlines, and proves without a doubt. And that second resurrection was on the first Easter Sunday. Because Jesus rose from the dead, never to die again. See the difference? Jesus rose from the grave to eternal life. And that's exactly what he offers us who believe, eternal life. We experience in part now when we ask Jesus into our life and we experience eternal life in all fullness on the other side of the grave. Isn't that wonderful? So this is the sort of the implication, the proof that Jesus is who he said he is. But we also move to some take-homes. There's a wonderful practical overflow from this message, and it's this. Jesus is giving us help so that we can comfort people who grieve. For Jesus models two ways for us to help other people. For some, they need to process their grief rationally. So maybe you have a friend or a loved one, and someone they care about died in a car accident. 
and there were contributing factors. And so for that person, we need to sit alongside them while they process all the ifs and the what could have beens and the maybes, because that's how they process grief. For other people, that's not so helpful. They just need us to sit beside them as quietly as they quietly shed a tear and they share some stories and memories of their loved ones. And we don't have to say much at all. We just have to listen and be there and maybe shed a tear as well. On top of this, none of us are 100% rational or 100% emotional when we grieve. We tend to lend one way or the other. And we can fluctuate as we work through grief. One time, some moment, we may need a bit of a logical thinking process. Another time, we might just need someone to shed a tear with. And here we have this, another thing, we have this wonderful permission from, from God to grieve. I, you know, in my work with funerals and, you know, pastoring folk that are grieving, sometimes people will apologize because they say, oh, it hasn't hit me, you know, and... and they almost feel guilty that they're not as emotional as everyone else. Well, that person needs permission not to be as emotional as everyone else, but to process it in their own way. And then I've had other people who apologise that they're too emotional. They keep saying they're sorry because they keep bursting into tears all the time. And they need permission to do that because that's the way they're grieving. So what about you? Are you more of a Martha? Or are you more of a Mary? I had two or three people come up to me, talk to me afterwards, and say, which they were, oh, I'm more of a Martha, you know? I'm more of a Mary. And that's okay, because it's the way we deal with grief. So Jesus gives us permission to grieve in a way that we need to grieve. But he's also given us some help so that when we come alongside people who grieve, we just pray, well, does this person need a conversation about the resurrection? <laughs> or does this person just need someone to be quiet and to tear, shed a tear with them? And I suppose we can't help but think of the royal family at the moment and as they grieve and as they grieve in their own way and it's more complicated for them, isn't it? Because it's so public. You know, you look at Charles and he, you know, man, he's just devastated, isn't he? And some of the other royal families having to sort of get out there and, and do the public thing. And so we pray for them that, you know, that they may be able to work through their grief, you know, not just in public, which is so hard, but also, you know, within the family context as they miss, first of all, a mother and a grandmother and someone very dear to the family. However, no matter the privilege one enjoys, nor the responsibility one shoulders, death is the great leveller. For our Heavenly Father has no favourites, whether they are a queen or a beneficiary. God knows their name, and he has no favourites. Whether they are a billionaire or a beggar, God has no favourites. As we read through John, we know what makes the difference. It's whether we believe that Jesus is who he said he is. Because it's our believing in Jesus, the Son of God, that sees us transition from the grave to eternal life, abundant life, everlasting life. It's because of Jesus that Christians can face the grave with no fear because we believe he is the resurrection and the life. This is the assurance we have as we grieve. This is the assurance we have as we face our own mortality. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, it's just wonderful to see Jesus on form. <laughs> I mean, he's always on form, but, you know, there he was with Mary, and he cried. And there he was with Martha, and they had a, had a theological discussion, and each of them were helped in their grief. And then to top it off, you raise their brother from the grave. Wow. Jesus, fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit. Encourage and, and strengthen us to worship you with all our hearts and to rejoice in your goodness and to know in our heart of hearts this to be true, that Jesus, you are the resurrection and the life. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen.